All right, everybody. Welcome to episode nine of the Indian Diaspora podcast. Uh, this is Vijay here, and I'm joined by my friends Shashi, Vishwas, and Neeraj. And today's topic is going to be about the uh, monarchy in Britain. Uh, recently, we witnessed uh, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, somebody that <laughs> was born well before all of us, uh, and had an unprecedented, I'd say. I don't think it has happened before, so she can correct me. But she was uh, the monarch for the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth for 70 years continuously. Uh, but it has been really interesting in the last few weeks, as all this has unfolded, to see uh, all sorts of opinions and feelings coming out about the Queen herself and then the larger uh, establishment of the monarchy. Um, a lot of people speaking very fondly about the Queen, a uh, lot of uh, people very sad on her passing. Uh, but then we've also heard some very interesting opinions from uh, countries that used to be uh, people who live uh, or uh, are from countries that used to be part of the colonies of the UK and their sort of conflicting emotions about the Queen as well as everything else around her. So it would be an interesting topic for us to explore. Uh, four of us, we grew up in India. Now we're operating in different parts of the world. Uh, but what are our feelings? I thought it would be a good one to ex uh, sort of explore as a group. And uh, I'm just going to open it up. So uh, who wants to jump in and talk about what they're thinking about all this? Well, Vijay, I'll start off here. I mean, I think it's been a, a huge spectacle, if nothing else. You know, a 10-day funeral. Uh, I mean, in the UK, there was wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Uh, in fact, it was quite difficult to find. In mean, the first few days, it was almost impossible to find anything else on the TV apart from coverage of uh, the Queen's death. But I think there has been coverage of this uh, pretty much worldwide. And in fact, you know, just following the coverage that was going on in the U.S. or the coverage that was going on in India, there was quite a lot of prominence given to the uh, the passing of the monarch and the uh, and, and all the sort of pageantry that went along with it. So, you know, we can't deny the fact that this was something that was a bit of a global event and and got the global coverage. Now, it got coverage from very different perspectives, but it's undeniable that it had a very wide following around the world. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Vishwas? You're sitting in India. What are you seeing? Yeah, so I have been looking at this uh, uh, from an Indian perspective and uh, marveling at uh, how much uh, affection the Queen has been getting in UK. And, and I've been thinking, uh, you know, what is it that... Uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily get this because the queen, she inherited the crown. Uh, she did not work for it. She was born into wealth. She remained wealthy. Uh, and uh, the, the, the monarchy is essentially so much about symbolism. And, and, and yet, an overwhelming majority of the country uh, is clearly you know was clearly very fond of her and and that was something that i don't understand in an in an age where where there is so much of uh, uh, questioning at the, you know in the in the you know at, at the to use a very moderate word so much of questioning about privilege and uh, and elitism so it's a, it's a very interesting thing for me to watch from from here yeah, and I think this is, there's an interesting thought there around there's the person uh, who was the queen and then 
sort of the larger establishment. And I feel like um, our thoughts or views have been somewhat compartmentalized in that in that area, right? So it feels like a lot of people held affection for the queen and maybe because, I don't know, maybe because she carried herself in a way which, you know, wasn't like maybe the queens of the past and she was much more engaged with the people. And in any case, the, uh, the whole monarchy is now more of a, a formality rather than they don't really have a lot of power or they don't really have functions beyond just, you know, maybe public relations. But that's that's been sort of the thing that's been crossing my mind, too. Is it the monarchy itself that a lot of people still have affection for? Or was it much more specific to the person who was at the top of it? Because when I think about what the role of kings and queens and, you know, all these warriors was, it was, you know, they ran the country. I mean, their, their main function was to provide security, I guess, for their people. Um and uh, take care of the population, but they did a lot of things that wouldn't fly in today's world, right? And if those kinds of roles have gone away, then what exactly do these people do? Uh, and it's not just the queen, I, I, you know, there's a whole array of dukes and duchesses and counts and knights and all that stuff that still stays in England. So I guess the question really is, are people still sort of looking forward or are they fond of the whole thing? I mean, Charles, I, I don't know. I don't know what I think about him as the king. So. Uh, what what is is there maybe a, well, a two part solution yeah. to this? It's like the queen and then everything else. What do you yeah. think, Shashi? Well, let me let me launch into this, Vijay. I think you know, for most people in the UK, um, they haven't seen another monarch apart from the queen. I mean, she reigned for seventy years. And that's you know pretty much the lifetime of everyone in the UK. So I think in the minds of many people, it's very difficult to distinguish between the queen and the monarchy. And you know, I think a big test of that is going to come with Charles now becoming king. Uh, so there's that side of it. <clears throat> but the point that Vishwas is making, I think, is, is something that needs a bit of unpacking here. So the first thing is that it is, again, it's absolutely true that the queen enjoyed very high approval ratings. I mean, some opinion polls that put her rating at 86%, which is way beyond uh, any politician ever dreams of getting, which is way beyond any celebrity actually dreams of getting. You know? So this is extremely high uh, public approval. And you have to wonder, you know, why is it that she had that approval um, at all? You know, especially when, uh, as Vishwa said, you know, there's all this concern about um, inherited wealth and privilege and all that. So, you know, it was very interesting to me to watch what people were saying as they were standing in the queue to go and watch a coffin. Right? People queued for hours and hours, and at, at times that queue was 24 hours long. Now, this is, you know, a, a level of dedication that those who are not in the queue will find very difficult to understand. But clearly, there were hundreds of thousands of people who were in the queue. I think it's important also to note that, you know, the queue was, of course, the thing that got all the coverage. Um, I mean, it's a few hundred thousand people. This is a country of 67 million people. So we can't go just by the fact that there were people in the queue. But nevertheless, the queue is symptomatic of a broader theme that's playing through the country. And so you have to wonder, what is it that they were saying uh, about why they were in the queue? And I think... Uh, you know, listening to them carefully, a few things come out. The Queen offered a sense of continuity, which I think we all look for. You know, in, in a changing world, a symbol of continuity is important. She offered, uh, you know, a form of integrity, which we think is missing from politicians and celebrities, which I think is very important. She offered, um, you know, cool, comforting words, at least to the British population, which I think many people found uh, very important. So all of these things, and I, and I could go on. But the question is, in the absence of the monarchy, where do people go 
to get all of those things that I've just listed out and many other things of that kind as well. <clears throat> it's not coming from politicians. And if you look at, um, you know, if you look at any other country for, for that matter around the world, I mean, you look at the US, you look at India, politics is very fractious. And, you know, this is not about taking sides, but this is the fact that it's fractious. So she was somehow able to stand above all of it and to provide this sense of serenity, which people crave. Um, and, I, and we shouldn't forget that there is some value in that that is very, very hard to replicate. Now, I'll say this quite clearly, that you know, if you didn't have the institution of the monarchy, it would be mad to try and create it today. I mean, it's, it's sort of inconceivable. But the fact is, it's there, it exists. And it provides this sort of um, you know, comfort to people in a way that people find very difficult imagining getting any other way, which is the reason that it survives. Now, going back to the question, you know, you know, is the queen the monarchy or is it different from the monarchy? Some of the things that people complain about, you know, some of the people who like the monarchy complain about the politicians and how much political instability there's been. But we have to remember that only one generation before her, there was a huge amount of instability in the monarchy as well. When her uncle, Edward VIII, abdicated the throne and, you know, it put the monarchy in crisis and all that. And it informed the viewpoint of the queen herself and the way she carried herself through, you know, this thing, this, this dedication to service, you know, whatever you might think of it, but, you know, she thought about it very genuinely. And that's something that people like. Now, there's one other point that Vishwas made, which I think is worth, uh, you know, I mean, talking about a little bit. The idea that she, didn't, she did not have to work for it. Now, it's absolutely the case that she inherited this thing. But if you look at, um, you know, how careful and how diligent she had to be to maintain that image, I would say that is not easy for anyone to do. I mean, to carry on for 70 years without a big scandal on her personally, leave aside what's happened with the rest of the family, but on her personally, there's never been a big scandal. Even if you look at celebrities, um, it's very, very difficult for anyone to carry on for 70 years doing something of that kind. Now, I, I never saw the Queen. Um, I saw her in a car once, but I've never seen her or met her otherwise. But I have met King Charles thrice as, when he was Prince of Wales. And, you know, there is something about these people where they can go and shake hands with people and make small talk and make people feel valued and all that for hours and hours and hours with a smile on their face. And I will challenge any of you to try doing that for more than 15 minutes and you'll see how tired you feel at the end of it. Yeah, it's 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 kind of going towards the direction that I was going around uh, public relations, right? So it feels to me that this is uh, this is a little bit of that continuity that you're talking about, but is, I, I want to extend on that a little bit, Shashi. So is there something here also got to do with the state of the world and people longing for the past, something about the British way of life, the culture, feeling nostalgic? You know, we have all these issues today going on around immigration. I'm sure that is a big piece of Brexit and this idea of keeping a national identity. So is there some of that playing into this nostalgia and these feelings because people also feel like, you know, things have changed so much in the last few years? Is that some of what's going on here? Well, I mean, there's undoubtedly some of that, you know, when you look at the pageantry that went along with it, you know, it harks back to, um, you know, a past. And it actually harks back to a past that probably never actually existed. But it, um, it you know, it gives you a warm glow of nostalgia. And there is undoubtedly a sense of that. I mean, you know, if you were being entirely critical about the pageantry that was put together, <clears throat> you know, you could say that this was drama made for TV, right? This was a 
perfectly rehearsed drama put up for TV, you know, got very high ratings and all that sort of. Now, I'm, I'm not su suggesting that that's the view that everyone should take. Uh, but you could take that view and say, well, if that's the objective, they were incredibly successful about it. Yeah. Hey, no, I think we lost news. Let me bring him back as a speaker one second. Um, well, let's keep going till he joins us again. But uh, I guess in that in that same sense now, let's talk about the reactions that we've had from outside the UK, right? So uh, the larger Commonwealth of countries, the Commonwealth is basically the countries that were former colonies of the of the British, and some of the views that have been expressed by people from there. Uh, what what have you heard? What have you seen? I saw some very controversial statements by some people uh, who said, you know, this was the Queen presided over an empire that uh, was basically looted the rest of the world. Um, and so uh, some thoughts from that perspective, especially considering that India, I mean, we were, you know, one of the most important parts of that British empire. What do you guys think? Uh, maybe I'll start uh, with you, Shashi, and then I'm going to get Neeraj in at some point. Uh, I think he dropped off but he's joined again. Go ahead, Shashi. Uh, you know, the Queen ruled for 70 years. This was the period of decolonization, and I think we've got to keep that in mind, that she presided over the dismantling of the empire. But in the minds of people outside the UK, and in particular in the colonies that were uh, subjugated for you know, decades and centuries, uh, I think there is a different dynamic that goes on, which is that in the same way that in the UK people find it very difficult to, to distinguish between the Queen and the monarchy, I think in the colonies people um, find it very difficult to distinguish between the Queen and the monarchy and the depredations of empire. Right? And so some of the views, in fact, some of the harshest criticism of the Queen after her death uh, came from the legacy of empire. Now, you know, that was batted down very, uh, very much by some people, including uh, some of the press in the UK. But there is no doubt that that legacy remains. And so I think here, uh, you know, it's important to, again, to unpack what is the legacy of the empire versus the role that the monarchy played in that versus the role that the Queen played in that. And I make just a couple of points over there, Vijay. The first is that the legacy of empire is absolutely dastardly. I mean, there's no excuse for it. And frankly, uh, you know, if people really understood, you know, all the legacy of the empire, it is so shameful that, you know, you can't do anything apart from hang your head in shame. Now, Vijay, you know, you and others know that, you know, I wrote a whole series of articles about black history two years ago. And actually researching all of that, you know, because black history is not something that we are aware of either, but researching all of that was really cathartic for me because it's not like I didn't know, but when you start researching all of it, you find that it actually is very, very shameful. So there is that history. And the monarchy undoubtedly played a role in all of that. I mean, in, in establishing the empire, in establishing slavery, in taking part in that trade and all that. So there's no doubt about that as well. As well. If you look at the queen... Uh, it goes back to the point that she presided over this, the dismantling of the empire. But this is a woman who very rarely expressed her view. So it's actually impossible to understand what her view on the empire or um, you know, her ancestors taking part in that actually was. So you have to dig quite deep and, uh, and try and see, well, what did she think and what did she do? And at one level, there was all the touring of the colonies, especially the Caribbean and Africa, where she was being treated like you know, a fairy queen and all that. Um, and, um, you know, those images, are, are, by the way, those images are abiding images of her you know, traveling around the world. Interestingly, the Queen went to India thrice in 1961, in 83, and in 97. 
And the first time she got a very warm welcome. You know, again, there's lots of pictures of her, you know, riding on an elephant and all that. But by the time of her last visit uh, in '97, um, you know, this was actually quite a, a quite a controversial visit. This was soon after Diana's death. Uh, in fact, the first trip she made after Diana's death. And she made the point to go out to Amritsar, to Jallianwala Bagh, right? And again, heightened expectations in India about, you know, is she going to make an apology there and, all, and so on, which of course never happened. But she did go there and she did bow her head in another memorial and all that, which was a sign of at least an acknowledgement, however incomplete and however unsatisfactory, that there was a brutal legacy of empire um, that she had to live with. <clears throat> But what happened alongside that is it was very, you know, very sad and very unfortunate, which is that the press reported, you know, that Prince Philip, who was with her, was grumbling about the fact that the Jallianwala Bagh incident, as its portrayed, was not exactly accurate. It ended up being a complete diplomatic disaster for the UK. So that's one side of it where, you know, she made some sort of grumbling acknowledgement to the fact that there was this history, but she never said a word about it herself. And I think, you know, for many of us who've grown up in India and in, in the rest of the colonies, I think that's a real uh, sort of missing part of what she did because that history cannot be left unacknowledged. And the result of that, Vijay, and I'll stop after this, <clears throat> Prince William went out to the Caribbean earlier this year and this trip ended up being a total disaster diplomatically. You know, all the visuals were wrong. Um, you know, there was a huge amount of protest going on about his visit. And part of it was that they were harking back to nostalgia about the Queen's visits in the 1950s and 1960s and trying to replicate that. And the world has changed. And in my mind, the world changed very radically as far as black history is concerned after George Floyd. The whole Black Lives Matters movement and all that has brought to life, in my view, um, you know, just how sad that history is. And you cannot go on with that nostalgia in the colonies anymore. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Ashi. And, you know, uh, it... This stuff that you talk about clearly impacted many parts of the world, but it very strongly impacted also parts, especially the northern parts of India uh, after the British left. And, you know, we have all that history. I'm going to uh, ask uh, Neeraj to jump in and talk a little bit about uh, what he thinks about all this. Uh, you know, it's definitely we are, we are from originally from India. We live in another country, which is a former colony of the, of the British. And uh, Neeraj, you also grew up in North India and you know, a lot of uh, scars from, from all the things that happened during partition, etc. What are your thoughts on all this? So, a couple of things. Uh, I grew up in Rajasthan and in my lifetime, I came across a lot of prince and princesses or the way they call them, Yuvraj, Yuvrani, and even Kaur. So I understood, you know, yeah, these guys were filthy rich. They were princes, kings, and whatnot prior to the partition. After the partition, when uh, <clears throat> Patil did all the merging of these princely states, these guys did need something because they had this lifestyle. So I understood giving them land, giving them properties and all that. What I never understood was, even after partitions, why were they revered so much? even like the local, an average person on the street would treat them that as if they were still the king. And I'm talking my young age, 70s, 80s. So it's, it was almost, what, 35 plus years after the independence. I did not understand why they were getting that much reverence uh, that, you know, they were just the rulers in the, for the name, by the name, sorry. Then another thing happened. Indira Gandhi died 
1984. And you saw the reverence, the whole nation came out. I mean, it resulted into a, a brutal episode uh, later on. But I still saw the same thing. I'm like, why do these guys get this much reverence? So Vishwas earlier point, she was queen by virtue of inheritance, right? And Indira Gandhi was a public leader. These guys were the prince and princesses I used to bump into. They were nothing. So I never understood that reverence to the uh, to a single person like that. Uh, to Shashi's point, the, although monarchy had some scandals, Queen did not. And maybe that was because of Queen. Now with the new king and the whole chain of uh, hires, we can't say that next 70 years would be scandal-free for anyone, a person in monarchy. So for me, I, 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 don't, I have very dim views about monarchy, especially given my parents were direct victims of partition, uh, both my mom's side and dad's side. So I do have very dim views of monarchy. Some I don't even want to express. Uh, but wondering about Queen, I'm in Vishwas camp, you know. Yes, she was Queen by name. She had some, uh, I don't know, ceremonial powers. I don't even know what they are. And she's gone. But should we actually, should even the monarchy consider ending this chapter saying, hey, this is it. After this, we are just as common as you are. And yeah, we'll draw our salary, we'll draw our pensions, whatnot. But maybe it's time that they call it quits. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> firstly, uh, yeah, the historical past, everybody has a different view, and I resonate with a lot of what you're saying. But expecting the folks who are next in line to happily give up all these goodies that they have is, is I guess, uh, visual thinking. It really, in my opinion, boils down to what the people of England and what the people in the larger Commonwealth, etc., decide. I mean, you already hear a lot about all those countries that were still sort of had some affiliation allegiance to the queen starting to say okay now it's time to move on you know this this is a chapter from the past let's do something different and i think uh, it will be really interesting to see where this goes so let's let's talk about that let's talk about where we think this is going now that uh, you know the the new king has taken over and there's a whole new set of people uh that the british people have to look at them and say okay this is now the monarchy so where is this going? And along with that, I also want to talk about uh, uh, there's the other piece that get, keeps bring, being brought up quite a bit of late is the idea that, OK, a lot of stuff was looted from the colonies. Uh, is it time for Britain to at least give back certain things that hold a lot of uh, value, even if, you know, it's, it's not you can't really fix all the depredations of the past, but. Uh, the one I'll mention is the Kohinoor diamond, for example. You know, India is like, can we have that back? So what do you think? Where is this headed? And what is your view on also the overall idea of uh, some some level of reparations, even if it's symbolic? Uh, let me start with uh, you, Shashi. <laughs> so Vijay, I think you know, there are two quite meaty issues that you've raised. But, you know, the Kohinoor issue is so, um, it's such a lightning bolt that uh, let me pick up with that first. So in India... Um, a lot of our emotion uh, about the empire is actually embodied in the Kohinoor. I mean, you know, if you think of it, you know, how big is the Kohinoor and how significant is it, you can debate that. But there is no doubt that it encapsulates a lot of emotion uh, that's associated with the empire. Now, so, you know, for those who don't know, the Kohinoor diamond has a, a provenance that goes back many centuries 
but it's probably from the Golconda mines <clears throat> in the uh, Deccan in India. Um, the provenance goes back to about the 14th century, where there is a diamond that's talked about that could have been the Kohinoor, you know, got traded between various um, sultans of the Delhi Sultanate, ended up with the Mughals, uh, eventually was in the possession of the Sikhs of the Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And then when the English won over uh, the Punjab in the 1840s, uh, a young boy, boy king, Dilip Singh, was forced to hand over the Kohinoor diamond as a gift to Queen Victoria. It arrived here in 1851, was displayed, and then went, <clears throat> went into various crowns. <clears throat> and it is going to be in the crown of the Queen Consort uh, going forward. Demands from India again. Now the issue here is that there is a huge amount of uh, goods in the UK <clears throat> that used to belong in the colonies that are now sitting here. They're all of very questionable provenance. In some cases, they were bought and brought to the UK. In many cases, they were the, the proceeds of war. They were loot from war, and they came here in the UK. <clears throat> it's very difficult to try and figure out what to do with them, and there are arguments on all sides. And, and I'm, I'm only saying this because I've heard all sides of this argument, and I can kind of relate to it. To me, if you look at the proceeds of empire, um, you know, the Kohinoor is not the biggest item. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about empire as a whole, not just India. The one that has the trickiest provenance among all the items sitting in the UK <clears throat> is a set of bronze objects, brass objects called the Benin bronzes. They were brought in from the Kingdom of Benin, which is in modern Nigeria, where there is documented evidence that the British entered into a war with the objective that the loot from the war would pay for the war. It's all documented. It happened in 1897. It's not even that long ago. There are people alive who would have heard stories from other people who were in this war. And interestingly, over the last um, you know, year or two, some of the Benin bronzes are now being returned to, uh, to Nigeria. Um, interestingly, the largest collection is in the British Museum. There's no talk of returning those, but others from the Horniman Museum and the Museum in Edinburgh and others are being returned. So I think this question about the Kohinoor, you know, to me, it's an emotional issue. I don't expect very much to happen about it. But it's an emotional issue because that one diamond encapsulates so much about British history in India, uh, all of which is very sordid. Yeah, let's let's stay on this. We'll talk about where the monarchy is headed uh, after this. But let me stay on topic around this idea of returning goods. I have my own thoughts, but first I want to throw it to next to Vishwas. You're sitting in India. You're probably hearing a lot of buzz around this. What are your thoughts on this, Vishwas? Yeah, so... Uh... Like uh, Shashi said at the end, my my thinking here is very simple. Uh, valuable items like Kohinoor are not coming back. I think we have uh, uh, people like David Cameron being very frank about it. You know, India is not going to get it back. That's, it's as simple as that. And we may have a lot of buzz and noise around it, but nothing is going to happen around it. What I, you know, if, if there's something valuable that uh, that uh, we can take i would i would take a very different direction over here you know i would i would ask myself is there something that india can learn from the success of this monarchy so this is a different taking a different direction vijay and apologies for doing that because you see you know the, you don't see this kind of popularity of a head of state you don't in the, in, in modern world you don't and I have been wondering why is it that uh, 
you know that she became so popular and and to me that is the valuable uh, uh valuable thing over here and 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 the and the thing that i'm landing on the thought that i'm landing on when i think about it is that maybe because i think as one of the things that shashi pointed out was that the queen was above politics maybe he did not say it in those many words but i was trying to look back at you know our history in india and think that you know do we have do we have someone like this who who was above politics in and and was our head of state and the person that came to my mind was uh, apj abdul kalam who did not owe his stature and uh, to a large extent his position also to politics he he was a very respected person before he became president in fact uh, there is an anecdote uh, that i can tell uh, uh, which i experienced myself i i was in the bangalore airport this was because before he became president and I, there was a hall at the exit so there is an exit from where the people uh, uh, from the you know the passengers come out and there's a hall and then there's the final exit where people go out and people are waiting outside so i had come from a flight and i was waiting in that hall for another person to join me and i had two people come out at that time this is for remember before he became president i had abdul kalam and i had sachin tendulkar come out and there were just two people in the hall there were two crpf people who were just there and they went to abdul kalam for his his autographs and and that was his stature before he became president and that is what i was thinking when i was looking at the monarchy and i was thinking that if we can have a head of state in india who is so respected and who is so above the fray then that is a, a lesson i would like india to learn and and a valuable piece of uh, of learning that maybe we can apply to our leadership where we have not really had that kind of respect for our head of state before <coughs> excuse me before or after abdul kalam so you know i i uh, that for me is the kohinoor that we could probably take from 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 this uh, story that's all i mean, I, you know, i couldn't agree with you more vishwas you know i mean i think you know abdul kalam was a person of such high stature that we you know it's a very rare commodity in india I mean, i had the great honor of meeting him a few times including once when he invited me into his study in rashtrapati bhavan and frankly it was one of the sort of most uplifting experiences of my entire life so you know that's that is absolutely the case but you know the, look at look at the comparison here for a minute right we did have people of that stature you know the people who were involved in our independence struggle were of that stature but their legacy is being contested today i mean they're long gone i mean if you look at the uh pictures of the crowds at mahatma gandhi's funeral they were no different from the the sort of crowds that you saw at the queen's funeral in fact probably much more devoted much more um you, you know distraught at his death and all that but that is a legacy that we are we ourselves are contesting today right and i think this is the problem that we face that or in you know, anyone in public life um is a person whose legacy is contested in some form or the other and her the queen's advantage and the queen's legacy really was that she, she was somehow able to keep herself above the fray in this respect yeah it's a fascinating direction for the conversation uh, vishwas thanks for actually it's a good one to look at because it kind of ties into where we want to go next because i think uh, the the examples you gave i think sometimes uh, leading uh, uh, 
a country where you have to make a lot of hard decisions, it's always going to be fraught with controversy. And, uh, you know, I think we talked about how she was non-political. I think you mentioned she was non-political, but the monarchy was not always that way, right? So it was just uh, a symbol of the times in which she lived, where her role was such that uh, the best way for her to lead and to stay non-controversial was to stay somewhat non-political. But when I visited London a few years ago and went to Westminster Abbey and I saw all the history, all these things were highly intertwined, right? And over time, they have sort of been separated. So knowing that, knowing the history, knowing maybe somewhat special as a person that the Queen was, but not, <laughs> I don't see that in the next generation, at least I don't. Um, where do you guys think this is headed or where do you think it should be headed? And let's get all of you one by one. So Shashi, uh, let's start with you, but I'm going to go around the room and see what everybody has to say. Yeah. It's very quickly, Vijay. I think there are two facts that need to be added in here. You know, one is that there are some monarchs who have willingly given away power. In fact, the most recent of example of that kind is in Bhutan, where the king willingly gave away a lot of his powers and turned the country into more of a democracy than it used to be. But more importantly, in the context of the UK, uh, you know, one of the reasons why the monarchy survived in the UK, where it was wiped out of many other countries, you know, notably of France, is that the monarchy kind of bobbed and weaved and changed with the times. I mean, some of that was accidental. And I won't go through all the history, but you know, in the early 1700s, about 1715, there was a shortage of a king in England. And so they went past the sort of lineage and um, imported somebody who was a distant cousin from Hanover. Uh, so these Hanoverian princes became uh, King of England, George I. But most of the time they lived in Germany. And the fact that there was an absentee king allowed the monarchy to kind of reshape itself. And part of the success of the queen was that she reshaped the monarchy as well by staying completely astute, completely non-political and all that. I think one of the big challenges for King Charles is in how he modernizes the monarchy. Now he's made a number of statements. He's going to have a slim down monarchy, etc., etc. I think it remains to be seen. And the test of uh, King Charles and after, you know, any, any, any monarchs that come after him will be, are they able to catch the public mood in quite the same way that the Queen was able to do for 70 years? It's not an easy trick in my mind that anyone can play. All right. That's, uh, it's lots to be seen, I guess, going forward, uh, what, what Charles can do and can he salvage this. Uh, what about you, Neeraj? What are your thoughts? So... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think time for monarchy to go. They might be, they might stay for the name, they might get their pension, but I think the whole ceremonial, even ceremonial rules need to be cupped down to basic ones saying we have a monarchy. And to, I was going to cite the same Bhutan example that Shashi said, uh, and, and it's not because I have some, you know, feelings against British, as I do, but that's not the reason here. Uh, it's mostly that, you know, the world has changed. There needs to be more. There needs to be more of humbleness and bringing people together, which Queen did a lot. I can't. I don't trust the the next set of uh, hires would do. So in my personal view, I think uh, they just need to figure out a way to make it less relevant and less ceremonial. How about you, Vishwas? What are your thoughts? No, my thinking here is that uh, there may be a place. For monarchy, if uh, uh, and and uh, uh, by extension, there may be a, a you know a place for uh, a respected head of state in India. If uh, and and I like I you know like I said, I see both of them in parallel in terms of what can we learn. Uh, 
the one thing that uh, struck me was that uh, no one disputes that uh, queen elizabeth uh, had taken her duties very seriously and and that she gave more importance to what she saw as her role than she gave to herself so that that is something that's a common thread that comes out across biographers and commentators and and i think if there is a head of state who whose sentiment such as this comes across then there will be a place for that head of state in a country and that person will be respected uh it it's a bonus if the person stays neutral to the extent you know admirable that the queen did that you did not even know what what was her opinion on on, on things so that uh, they can they can stay above the fray and carry the whole nation together but even uh, if that is not done very well if the person is able to sincerely show a sense of duty then that would be great for example you know she was back at, at doing her work uh, immediately after her husband died so that is something that i admire and and that is what i think that if you if you put uh, others and your work before yourself then then the country will see it and and they will accept you yeah i think uh, interesting thought there to vishwas it's sort of trying to straddle the line uh before we close i guess i'll give you my thoughts i think the idea of uh, modernized monarchy is very interesting shashi the way you put it there uh it's it's really trying to uh reconcile the desire to i guess cling to past and tradition and you know just the feeling that you know there is uh britain has a certain history and a certain way of doing things but also trying to modernize and and uh, move with the times uh you mentioned how the monarchy has weaved and bobbed and figure out how to stay alive so far uh, my personal take on this is that it's been something that's stuck around and had uh had its longevity because of the person that uh, queen elizabeth was uh, irrespective of what the past was uh, maybe there is a place for this still in the realm of tourism i know that uh, it brings in a lot of a uh, lot of money to the to the country so uh clearly keeping some of these folks around and having museums etc would be interesting but i i am in the camp i guess where uh, neeraj is around the fact that this should probably be uh, this should be the end of the story and uh, i really don't understand how a modern country like the uk uh can continue to spend these huge amounts of money on on these folks i i saw a video of how uh prince charles somebody actually squeezes toothpaste on his toothbrush every morning so it kind of feels very anachronistic and 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 wrong but again it's up to the british people to decide one other thing that i couldn't get to earlier was about returning the loot i think it's just just look forward i mean you know all sorts of things happened in the past uh if we go into the history of how all this happened you'll find lots of things that you don't like either uh you know might made right in the old days uh things ended up in places where they probably should not have let's look at what we can learn from all this and if written you know out of their own magnanimity returns a few things that are very uh, significant to their past colonies great but we should just be thinking about how do we go forward and learn from this and keep moving so that's my take on it but very uh, fascinating conversation and thanks guys uh, uh, have a great week and we'll be back in another 7 days to have another one so thanks a lot guys have a good one bye